Today's guest of honour has adeptly transitioned from the political environment to the financial marketplace in a manner that befits a seasoned, pragmatic leader. The political community was understandably disappointed when the Honourable Jim Prentice announced his resignation from the Conservative Party Cabinet last fall. Ottawa's loss was Bay Street's gain. Mr. Prentice was elected to the House of Commons as a Member of Parliament for Calgary Centre North in 2004 and subsequent, was subsequently re-elected in 2006 and 2008. Over the four-year period from 2006 to 2010, his portfolio of ministries, industry, environment, Indian affairs and northern development provided ample experience in minding the triple bottom line, one of the core responsibilities of any modern-day corporate governor. Before taking the plunge into politics, Mr. Prentice practiced law in Calgary, specializing in commercial law and property rights. He served as the co-chair of the Indian Claims Commission of Canada for seven years. Now, the former senior cabinet minister has launched the next chapter of his career, which began in earnest at the beginning of the year when he assumed the role of senior executive president and vice chairman of CIBC. Providing leadership on important issues and initiatives has always come naturally to the lawyer turned politician turned banker. And that's exactly what he's doing now, providing leadership as he guides the expansion of CIBC's relationships with corporate clients across Canada and abroad, and stewards strategic initiatives to enhance CIBC's position in the market. The institution we know as CIBC turns 50 in a few months, though its predecessors, the Canadian Bank of Commerce and the Imperial Bank of Canada, opened their doors almost 150 years ago. Much has changed in that time, and the rate of change will continue to accelerate. As the future unfolds, there appears to be much optimism in the Canadian financial services sector about our position as global leaders. We will find out in a moment whether our speaker shares in that optimism. Ladies and gentlemen, here to discuss investment and globalization from the Canadian perspective, please join me in welcoming the Honourable Jim Prentice. Thank you, uh, Nick, for that kind introduction and um, for this opportunity to speak to such a full house today. Thank you to the Canadian Club and everyone who has worked so hard to, to make this luncheon possible. And thanks also to uh, people I've worked with, Daniel Goldberg and David McGowan uh, in particular. As uh, many of you may know, um, I have some family history with uh, this uh, great city. My father was uh, briefly a Toronto Maple Leaf. In fact, he was the youngest player in the franchise history. He played for the Leafs uh, in a handful of games in the 1940s. He always told me that he was there for a cup of coffee. But uh, in fact, as an enthusiastic 17-year-old in the dressing room, he stepped on Babe Pratt's toe. And that put uh, Babe Pratt out of commission for uh, a number of weeks and sent Dad to the minors pretty much for good. Um, <laughs> He did always maintain his sense of humor uh, about the Maple Leafs, and of course the Maple Leafs have made that much easier. Uh, this, um, this is the first chance I've had to share some thoughts uh, publicly since assuming my new responsibilities at CIBC, where my role is to, uh, is to help the bank uh, grow our businesses 
and also look for new domestic and global opportunities for our clients. And Canada's banks, uh, as you all know, are exceedingly important national institutions in our country, with a very deep history in our country, which in our case goes back to Confederation 150 years. And perhaps for that reason, uh, my transition to the private sector has been, I think, a relatively smooth one. Certainly the learning curve has been uh, steep and absolutely unrelenting, but I've had the benefit uh, and the support and patience of many people from CIBC who are here today, uh, including my colleagues uh, Richard and Sonia, who are sitting at the head table. And I would like to publicly thank everyone who has made this transition uh, possible. I think every single person in this room has a story, a personal story that links to one of Canada's banks. Uh, in my case, my mother was actually a teller at the Imperial Bank, and my father, as a young hockey player, deposited his annual salary, which was the princely sum of $5,000, into uh, the Bank of Commerce. And so we all have stories like that about these deep, rich national institutions. So my transition from public uh, to private life has reinforced my long-standing belief in the importance of open dialogue, dialogue between the private sector and governments. When I was a minister, I always maintained that you don't get excellence in public policy unless you talk to people. And to be clear, uh, anything less than that, anything less than excellence, will impair our ability to carry on with the building of this remarkable country. And never has this been truer than it is today when governments, financial institutions, business institutions are making decisions that will shape Canada's global prospects and will influence our access to global investment capital. The world is in the midst today of the largest capital expansion in human history. And Canada is well positioned to benefit from that growth. We have to play to win. And leaders in both business and government will help shape the game plan in the days ahead. And the question is, what do we have to do to succeed? As you know, I, uh, I loved my time in public life. I was, for a time, Canada's Minister of Industry. And I worked in an office uh, on the top floor of a building that was named after C.D. Howe. And I sat, as a matter of fact, at his desk. C.D. Howe was uh, intelligent, he was driven, he was visionary, and he was also uh, an incurable gossip. And known in Ottawa from uh, the Rideau Club as the best retailer of cabinet secrets. He had, a, uh, he had a big personality and he had a big desk. It was more of a massive table. And it was from there that he, through the middle decades of the last century, really became the man known as the Minister of Everything, and he helped build Canada's modern industrial framework. It was from that very desk that he aggressively pursued an industrial strategy that was in equal parts Canadian and global. C.D. Howe knew something, and that was that access to investment capital was the key to the building of Canada. And he championed access to foreign direct investment to develop what we now see as the modern Canadian economy. Heavy industry, seaways, highways, pipelines, universities, airports. He helped back winners to create the Canada that we all know today. And so as I sat at that, uh, at that desk uh, in the first decade of a new Canadian century, I often reflected on the ways in which the levers of economic growth had changed in the time since C.D. Howe. 
But in one critical respect, the Canada of C.D. Howe was very similar to the Canada of today. Then as now, Canada was a country small in population, but enormous in potential. A potential, frankly, that we can only unlock if we are full participants in the global economy. A potential that demands, ultimately, access to international capital and requires us to be innovative, to be entrepreneurial, and to be trade-oriented as a country. In Howe's day, being an international player for our country, for Canada, meant simply opening our doors to foreign direct investment to supplement Canadian capital. But today, Canada is much more international. We are amongst the most international of countries, and we are both an importer and an exporter of capital. Just a couple of examples to make the point. Canadian direct investment abroad has increased dramatically. In 1980, when I was graduating from university, the value of Canadian direct investment abroad was equal to just 9% of our GDP. We were minor players. By 2000, that had risen to 33%. And by 2009, Canadian direct investment abroad has risen to a level equal to 42% of our GDP. And over that same time period, Canadian mergers and acquisitions also went global. In 2000, by value, some two-thirds of the M&A activity completed by Canadian companies was domestic, and merely one-third was international. And by 2008, that had reversed itself, one-third was domestic, and two-thirds now involve foreign companies. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, be under no doubts, globalization is accelerating. The demand for investment capital is about to expand beyond anything that the world has previously seen. This investment boom involves the emerging markets of the world. And in the fullness of time, it will bring significant competitive pressures to bear, both in terms of capital availability and also cost. Now, many of you in this room, I know, have, uh, have traveled through the Asia-Pacific. You may have had the same reaction that I had when I made my first trip to Beijing. It changed the way that I thought about cities, about economies, and in fact, what it means to be a human being on the planet today. And it confirmed, in my view, what we need to do as Canadians to compete. Take Beijing. Beijing is a city of almost 30 million people, almost the size of Canada. And Beijing illustrates not just the emergence of China, but the re-emergence of China as the dominant force in world commerce. And Beijing also illustrates uh, just how urbanized our planet is becoming. Almost half a billion more people live in cities today than just eight years ago. Half a billion people. China alone will have 44 cities that are larger than Toronto. India will have another 11 cities that are larger than Toronto. And together, India and China will have 200 cities that are larger than my hometown of Calgary. Now, take the transformation of Beijing and of China over the last decade, and imagine if just half of that, if even just half of that is replicated throughout the developing world. Consider the investment that will be required to meet the needs in China, 
in the rest of China, in India, in Indonesia, in Mexico, in Brazil, demand for new homes, for transportation systems, for water systems, for factories, for offices, for shopping centers, for government buildings, for hospitals. I could go on and on and on. And imagine that rate of investment carrying on not just for years, but for decades. And so all of this will take investment on a scale that we have never seen before on the planet. Again, when I was a young man finishing university in the early 1980s, the world was coming out of what was then an enormous building boom. 30 years ago, global investment in infrastructure and productive assets was estimated to be $4.5 trillion per year. It seemed like a huge sum at the time. By 2008, that investment had more than doubled to $10.7 trillion. And looking ahead down the road, estimates for 2030, which is not that far away, are $24 trillion. In other words, the world will be investing five to six times more in the kinds of infrastructure of which I speak than it did at the beginning of the 1980s. And we'll be doing so year after year after year after year. And so, ladies and gentlemen, in a world such as this, uh, Canada cannot hang back. We need to be ambitious, we need to be entrepreneurial, and we need to be practical-minded in terms of positioning ourselves to compete and to win. There is no doubt that our commodities will be in demand. Energy, food, metals, timber, you name it. But just as in C.D. Howe's time, we have to think of ourselves as more than ewers of wood and drawers of water. We must diversify Canada beyond our safe North American market. We must move up the commodity value chain by doing more with our natural resources. And we have to showcase our values to the world, our capacity for global leadership, and succeed in fields where, as Canadians, we demonstrate excellence and where we are admired. Clean water, transportation, education, health care. And we have to ensure that we enable Canada's global champions to compete and to win, whether it's in aviation or mining, energy or manufacturing, financial services or information technology. And ladies and gentlemen, most importantly for Toronto, we have to ensure that we are in a leadership position within the world's capital markets. Now, I'm not uh, here today suggesting that any of this will be simple. No one else is going to be standing still. And this will happen in an era of rapacious global competition, including significant competition for capital. But on an asset basis, those of you in this room, all of us as Canadians, are the wealthiest people in the world. Barely 35 million of us occupying more than our fair share of the world's landmass. But absent capital, we will be ewers of wood and drawers of water. Now, I've done more than my own share of ewing of wood and drawing of water. Um, I put myself through university working uh, under the bins in Alberta's coal mines, and there is no shame in hard labor, and there is no shame in excelling at those industries. But we lead the world today in so many ways. I was struck in the time that I was a cabinet minister, I'm often asked, uh, this question, but I was struck how everywhere I went in the world, people would approach me and they would say 
that Canada was the country that they wanted their country to be like. And so, well, none of us should ever become overconfident because hubris and disaster are traveling companions. Our country's brand is strong, and everywhere you go in the world, we are admired. And in truth, in the days ahead, our demand for capital will never be higher. The world's demand for capital is growing, but so too is Canada's. Cumulative capital investment in the oil sands will reach $93 billion by 2015. Our manufacturing sector is poised for growth once more as we begin to invest in productivity enhancements from a strong dollar. And there's now over $40 billion of hydro projects on the books in Canada. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for a country of our size, these are startling capital requirements, which brings us to the consideration of the proposed merger of the London Stock Exchange and the TMX. The Toronto Stock Exchange was established in 1861 and served Canadians well by raising Canadian capital for Canadian projects in a simpler time. But we are now at the edge of the next phase in globalization of financial markets, namely the interconnected ownership of a small number of dominant international exchanges. And so what will that future look like? In light of the startling capital requirements of which I speak, how will our country tap into deeper and broader pools of capital and liquidity? How will we stay ahead of the capital curve in order to meet our need for capital. Now in my view, from my perspective, this isn't about ideology and it's certainly not about isms. It is about positioning ourselves to compete and to win. It's about advancing Canada's interests. In contemplating the merger of the London Stock Exchange and the TMX, Canadians need to be assured of a number of things, three of which are as follows. Firstly, we need continued access to both domestic and global capital to fuel Canadian growth. We are a small country with a huge appetite for capital, and our needs, while they are not unique, are quite distinctive. No other country in the world is developing and leading mining projects and energy projects on Canada's pace or scale. No one. Just a few examples suffice. The oil sands, hydro projects, pipelines to the south and to the west, and someday from the north. Secondly, the proposed merger uh, is less about ownership than it is about regulatory control. Canada has to retain the capacity to regulate in order to advance our national interests. Canadian regulations that served us so very well through the financial crisis cannot in any way be watered down. There is no doubt as Canadians that we have a preference to adopt global solutions for global challenges, and certainly that works in the world of law and of trade. But in the world of financial services, in my view, Canada has been better served by promoting Canadian roles. We have run a tighter ship, and that has been the benefit to the benefit of Canadian consumers, Canadian businesses, and ultimately, Canadian taxpayers. And so critically, how Canadian regulatory standards will integrate with those applicable in London is not yet clear. 
And in fact, the, uh, if I could say, uniquely Canadian debate that we have had about national securities regulation has now been superseded by a much more complex debate about how provincial and national regulation will integrate into a global framework. Thirdly, I say uh, to you today that the role of Montreal, of Calgary, of Vancouver, and especially of Toronto as participants in global finance must be enhanced and cannot be diminished. We must ensure that the so-called mind and management of Canadian finance not migrate to London, or for that matter to New York, or for that matter to Hong Kong. And let's be clear when we speak about the TMX and the LSE, the real issue isn't who owns the pipes and the wires. The real issue is that the TMX, as the clearinghouse for capital, is far more than a strategic asset. It is, in fact, one of the fundamental building blocks of capital formation in Canada, and as such, it is one of the fundamental building blocks of the Canadian economy. Now, there are a few, uh, however limited they might be, studies on the merger of stock exchanges. Those studies point clearly to the fact that mergers can affect liquidity and they can affect the cost of capital. Mergers affect also different firms in different ways. Firm size in particular, industrial sector and the location of the exchange affect those who are seeking capital in ways that are not equal or symmetrical, but vary from firm to firm. And so our consideration of any proposed merger as Canadians has to ensure that it is in the interests of all firms that are seeking capital, whether they are global enterprises accessing global markets, or whether they are junior mining companies, for example, accessing capital markets for the first time. And so I say to you that uh, current events require Canadians to weigh the practical merits rather than the ideologies surrounding stock exchange mergers. We should focus our efforts on determining what specific conditions this transaction or any future transaction might, must meet in order to ensure that Canadian markets, Canadian capital markets continue to succeed and prosper. And the question to be answered is on what national terms does a merger make sense? Absent specific conditions that are permanently applied, decisions may be made over time by future owners that could diminish the strength and the vitality of Canadian capital markets, and ladies and gentlemen, we cannot allow that to happen. We've done a lot to get things right in this country. We are a nation that has really emerged proudly on the international stage as a respected and an affluent democracy, envied everywhere for what we've achieved. Our society is cohesive, we respect the rule of law, we are open, we are inclusive, we have built extraordinary infrastructure for transportation, for education, for health care. We are well governed and our public finances and banking systems are amongst the very best in the world. And it needs to be said that Canada and our national governments have done a good job on the fiscal front for more than 15 years and to remain competitive we need to continue this commitment to smart fiscal policy. But solid public finances, uh, while necessary, are not a sufficient condition on their own. 
And so in order to remain competitive, we need a continued focus on assuring international investors that Canada does remain open for business, pushing forward as well on more new free trade agreements, streamlining regulations on major infrastructure projects in our country, and building a system of innovative, competitive post-secondary institutions. And paramount for you in this room today, we must ensure that Canadian firms have the right access to capital. This is about competing um, in international markets and it's about winning. It's about being ready to capitalize on the transformative investments that we are going to see internationally. Now I began uh, this speech uh, reminding you of my family's connection to hockey. As Canadians, we've always competed to win, whether it's in business or in sports. The truth is that Canada can successfully meet these challenges, the challenges of the new domestic and global investment boom, if we have the right fiscal foundation, the right policy direction, and we have access to capital. But ladies and gentlemen, we also need to be careful. Careful because the global economy today is full contact. And as my father said to me every time I headed off to the arena, son, keep your head up and never ever look down when you're coming across the blue line. It was good advice for hockey, it was even better advice for politics, but it's perfect for banking. Thank you very much. So folks, uh, thank you, Mr. Prentice. Uh, we are going to uh, accept some questions from the crowd. Uh, Jennifer has a microphone and Nicholas has a microphone. So please just raise your hand to get their attention and we'll field your calls one by one. We have no questions. I can't imagine that. but. There we go. Thank you very much. I'd like to ask, we know that there's a coming shortage talent that's going to be occurring on a global basis that's going to impact us here in Canada. How do you think that's going to impact what you're talking about, about capital and about growth of different markets within um, the Canadian economy? Um, I, I believe you said labor shortages at the beginning of the question. Talent, talent shortage. Well, I, I think very clearly one of the... Um, pressing limitations that, uh, that all of the economies will face is a shortage of talent, a shortage of uh, able-bodied workers that have the necessary skills. And so um, I think from a Canadian perspective, there are a couple of solutions to this. One is that we have to have an, in, uh, an immigration system that continues to bring uh, the right people to our country. This, this year, as I recall, Canada will bring some 250,000 new Canadians here. Um, I think that there's been some fine-tuning of the immigration system to ensure that uh, we are bringing people here who can be fully employed and fully participatory in, in Canadian society. I think the Minister of Immigration is doing an excellent job uh, with those changes and they need to continue. But in addition, um, I think we need to focus uh, in the days ahead on our post-secondary institutions. They have to be innovative, they have to be entrepreneurial, and I think there's some early work that indicates that in the competitive world in which we are in, 
to be sure, we have excellent post-secondary institutions, but they're also competing with new emerging countries who are creating extraordinary institutions that have much bigger scale than we do. And so uh, the challenge for Canadian universities and colleges to say in sort of top flight will, I think, continue to be a daunting one. And I really believe that we need to focus on that as a country. Other questions? Mr. Prentice. Mr. Prentice, uh, Robert Bathgate, Canadian representative, State of Tennessee. I wonder if more specifically with regard to CIBC, if you could give us an idea of what your expansion plans might be with regard to the U.S. and more specifically the southern states. Um. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when I was introduced, it uh, someone pointed out I'd adeptly made the conversion from politics to business. Um, it'll be even more adept if I sidestep that question. <laughs> Um, and so I will leave that uh, for my colleagues Sonia and, and Richard to address. I'm not here specifically to speak about uh, CIBC's strategic plan. Um, I can tell you that it is a remarkable uh, national institution, a remarkable bank, and uh, you've seen the recent results that the bank has, has posted. Um, it is a bank that's poised to do uh, remarkable things, and uh, I won't get any further into the strategic plan <laughs> than that today. But thank you for your question and your interest. <laughs> Other questions? I mentioned my family history in Toronto, if you might just indulge me. Uh, my wife Karen is here, but um, also my daughter. Uh, my daughter, Cassia, who's lent her uh, own part of our family history here in Toronto because she's just about to graduate. I understand, from uh, <laughs> the University of Toronto Law School, Cassie. One last question. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Prentice. I'd like to welcome Susan MacArthur, a Vice President with the Canadian Club of Toronto, to the podium. Mr. Prentice, uh, on behalf of the Canadian Club, I would like to extend my sincerest appreciation for your thoughtful and timely remarks. Um, I think we'll all be watching very closely as the proposed merger between the London and Toronto Stock Exchange unfolds. And Interesting to hear your views on that subject in particular. Um, Jim, as you know, and as you pointed out, politics is a tough sport. As your dad pointed, I think, full contact. And I've spent 25 years in the banking business. What you're about to find out is so is banking. <laughs> success in politics is measured by votes. And as your colleagues will tell you, success in banking is measured by revenue. <laughs> These are indeed interesting times for Canada and Canadian industries. And we really do need champions who provide capital to get behind our Canadian companies. I was quite heartened to hear you say that at CIBC, that's an important element of your business plan. So, Mr. Vice Chairman, it would be our pleasure to have you back at any time to talk to us about politics, 
or business, and we look forward to hearing you at the podium again, and good luck in your new career. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan. Thank you again, Your Honor. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here and to CIBC for uh, sponsoring today's event. I'd also like to thank Rogers Television and 680 News for their ongoing promotion of Canadian Club events. Ladies and gentlemen, this meeting is now adjourned.